Welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Steve. And I'm Erica. And Steve, today we have with us a special guest. I'm a, super excited. A new pastor who's from your faith background. Uh-huh. Well, we're all from the broad same family tree, but from a, a local branch on the family tree. Yeah, from your uh-huh. local branch. And so, um, will you introduce yourself? Yeah, hi, I'm Sarah. This is my first day at work. <laughs> this, this really is. We are, we are catching Sarah on her first day in a new call in our area, and we're grateful to have her among us and for being game enough to say, hey, we record a podcast. Would you like to join us? So uh, welcome welcome to Sarah. Thank you. <laughs> Somebody, I won't mention who, said badass women of the Bible. So, you know, I had to be here for that. <laughs> well, indeed, you've tipped your hand to where, where what the midst of our series is that we're in the midst of. Uh, we've had a couple of conversations. Erica, catch us up so we know where to where to. So, for the last couple weeks, we've been looking at um, women of the Bible, and not just women for the sake of who they birthed. Right. You know, we know, we know Mary because she obviously is the mother of Jesus, but we're looking at women for their example of leadership uh, in Scripture for both women and for men. So, we have looked at Ruth mm-hmm. and her story with her mother-in-law and with Boaz and how the three of them um, are all characters of great leadership in the Bible. And then last week, we looked at Esther and how she saved the whole the whole Hebrew people of her time mm-hmm. um, from being killed. And so now today we're going to be going into the book of Exodus, and we're going to be looking at a couple different groups of women. Um, we're going to be looking at the Hebrew midwives from the early chapters of Exodus, and then also we're going to be looking at Moses' sister, Miriam. Yeah. So, Steve, do you want to kind of help us to jump in on this one? You know, it's funny. It's, as you were sort of re- rehearsing where we have been so far, I, I, we thought about this. We, we kind of talked about this when we were talking about Esther, but it's becoming even clearer to me how at least the women we've talked about so far and the women we're going to be talking about today, mm-hmm. um, that what they what they are remembered for in particular is a lot more subversive and uh, powerful mm-hmm. and bold than often they get remembered mm-hmm. and, and given credit for. You know, that, that Esther's... Uh, Esther's way of saving her people we talked about last time is, is basically an act of civil disobedience and her willingness to use a position of uh, privilege has been sort of thrust upon her because she wins the beauty pageant uh, and and speaks out in a way when surely there are people who are like you need to just be quiet, don't make waves uh, and she speaks up uh, in this way that's savvy that is, is brilliant and is also uh, she takes on great risk onto herself when she could have kept quiet and just been the smiling celebrity wife that uh, King Xerxes wanted, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Ruth too. I mean, like this is there's I don't know any other way to describe it, but uh, she's certainly got um, a, a certain boldness in the way she sort of steps into to putting things right with her family. Uh, but the, it's a story of a migrant worker who goes across the border, finds work on an under the table job, gleaning fields in order to provide for her mother in law. I mean, like. These are, these are women who are resourceful, who are strong, and who are remembered in the Bible as being strong for doing those things, not in spite of them. Not mm-hmm. like, well, you know, Ruth, she was a migrant worker and she crossed the border and all that kind of thing, but she was good in these other ways. No, that's exactly how she's good. She's faithful, she's loyal, she does these things for the sake of her family, for her mother-in-law. Um, there's all, that, that, that's powerful. So where we're headed today is, first, in the beginning of the book of Exodus, um, we only get two names for these women. I don't know that there were only two midwives in the entire nation of the enslaved. Seems <laughs> unlikely. That, that, that seems like maybe only two got remembered. Uh, and maybe because these, these women's names are just so lovely on the ear. Shifra and Pua are their, are their names. But to, to set the background a little bit, um, in the opening chapter of Exodus, we're sort of like, this is the, the, the sort of opening crawl of the credits like in Star Wars that 
catches you up at the end of Genesis, the people of, the descendants of, of uh, Jacob are this sort of band of tribes of people. They settle in the northern part of Egypt in the land of Goshen. Things are fine. Things are happy. Everybody remember Joseph. Boy, he sure helped us out in a pinch. And now a new pharaoh comes on the scene who doesn't remember Joseph and who is threatened because there's all these foreigners living in his territory. And so he wants to deal with them and to subdue them and he makes them slaves. And then the, the, the powers that be at the top of Egypt, Pharaoh and, and his, uh, his powerful people, are afraid that even this whole nation of slaves will overpower them and rise up and rebel or leave or something like that. Because they're growing. I mean, they're they're huge. There's a lot of them there. Right. And so the new policy is, well, we won't let them deliver any babies, and any baby boys uh, will be killed, and we want the midwives to kill the baby boys and not let them be born, and daughters they will have. This is sort of like an attempt to uh, diminish the population, stop these able-bodied soldiers or potential rebels from uh, starting a slave uprising. And uh, into that scene uh, are these, these two named women, Shifra and Pua, who are midwives uh, of the Hebrews. And, uh, okay, I, I've done enough setting the scene, but what do they do? Or what do they not do? So these midwives, um, when, they, when they're brought in front of um, the king of Pharaoh and they're asked to, you know, to kill these boys, they say, well, you know, we've tried. We've tried to do this, but Hebrew women, they're strong. <laughs> they're tough. And they just have their babies way too quickly, and we can't get there. And by the time we get there, the baby is bored, and, well, there's nothing we can do about it. Right. And clearly, I mean, this is a cover. Like, this is not really the, the, the Hebrew women are just so fast at birthing babies, <laughs> the midwives don't have time to arrive on the scene. This is, again, an act of civil dis- disobedience, refusing to do what Pharaoh wants them to do. Mm-hmm. I am just so shocked that this lie works. <laughs> right. <laughs> As somebody who has recently given birth, my son's a year and a half, and labor and delivery is long and it's painful and the very idea of oh yeah I'm going to quickly give birth to this kid before the doctors and nurses arrive with medicines and painkillers and doing things like oh that's just so ridiculous right right so it seems like the as this story got remembered in Israel's you know collective memory they didn't remember Shifra and Pua for being the cleverest at inventing stories. It's not like, boy, you should be a clever storyteller and lie making no. But like, the, what what they're honored for, what they're remembered for, is that they they stood with the, their people. They sided with, mm. no, we're not going to kill these babies, um, and that they refused to, to do what Pharaoh wanted them to do. Even though it's certainly uh, there's certainly this threat hanging if you don't do what Pharaoh says, he has no problem killing people. But I think it's also a story of just how much the pharaoh and his other menfolk are dunces. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, these men at this time, they are not involved in childbirth. Yeah. Like, you know, They're like, uh, oh, we don't know what goes on when babies are born. Yeah, we, we get far, far away and we go and smoke our cigars and, 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 and then celebrate when we, elsewhere and all of a sudden, oh, there's a baby. Okay, And it's all clean. Right. <laughs> right, the, the baby, just like in the sitcoms, right? The baby is born and like instantly, oh, look, here's this baby that's being toweled. Oh, wow. It's, it's like a month old and right. like it's all hair. pink and the like scalp is all like rounded right. already. Right, yeah. right, right. Well, like in, in a way, like I, I think that that comedic element to the story. Sometimes we're afraid, uh, especially we you know religious people, especially we you know religious professionals like pastors. You know, this is this is our our day by day, week by week 
the core of what we do has to do with the word, but sometimes we forget the Bible intends to be funny, especially in, in particular times, mm-hmm. and not only is it okay in those moments to laugh, that's the right way to read it, is to let the things that are meant to be funny be funny, and to notice how the biblical writers in particular, and maybe especially in Israel's tradition and Hebrew scriptures, use humor uh, to deflate the arrogant and the proud. Mm-hmm. This is a joke at Pharaoh's expense, and in a sense of like, yeah, that's okay, because he's Pharaoh, and because he needs to be taken down a few pegs, and if you are the people who have no resources, no ability, no, no, I mean, these are the, the enslaved people here in this story, um, their way of resisting, their way of saying, no, God will deliver us, God will raise somebody up, we won't always be under Pharaoh's thumb, um, is sort of like telling those stories that allow it to like make fun over to poke at like, and Pharaoh believed it, that the, really, that, that worked, that plan worked? <laughs> Um, and I, I think in a way, like, at the best of Israel's traditions, I mean, throughout the what we call the Old Testament, throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, there's this ability of uh, those, those voices uh, in, in the Scriptures themselves to sort of make fun of the Nebuchadnezzars and the Pharaohs and uh, to, to, to poke them a little bit um, in a way that, like, New Testament voices like Mary will pick up and run with and they sing about God, you know, striking down the powerful and uh, filling the, the hungry with good things and sending the rich away empty. There's this sense, that, like, all along is a through line to the whole Bible. There's that idea, um, especially when the, the voices like Pharaohs claim to have God's power or the power of the gods, and this is how it will be, you will listen to me. Um, that, that kind of voice of, of almost a resistance or comedy as resistance is, is part of what's going on there, too. So th- this is the only time that Shifra and Pua are mentioned by name, mm-hmm. I think in the whole Bible. Maybe they might get a shout-out in the Hall of Faith in, um, in uh, Hebrews, but even that's a long yeah, shot. But, um, and nobody that I know of has ever named their kid Shifra or Pua in honor of these two women. And surely there were countless other midwives, as Sarah points out, who didn't even get named, didn't get the, the name drop here. Hey, you all are going to have more kids, maybe. So, <laughs> there's a name for you here. But, like, I, I think it's, it's, it's interesting to me that in a story, in, in a book that is eventually, when you get through later on into Exodus, has no problem with stories with great special effects and, mm-hmm. like, miracles. Like, you know, honest to God, uh, you know, plague of locusts, river to blood, death of the firstborn, parting the seas, miracles, starts out in this way that is grounded in something so, what seems like an ordinary act of saying no, no to Pharaoh, and I will deliver this baby. Um, that, like, this story, it, it doesn't skip over this. And, and again, like, if, if you were making a movie, like, you know, we, we talk sometimes about what things get lost when you translate the novel mm-hmm. into the movie, you know, like, if, if you were one who had all these stories told, I could see the temptation, like, yeah, oh, we'll cut that out, that's just a bunch of midwives. And, like, no, the, the, mm-hmm. as this story got remembered, no, this is important. It starts with this act of saying no to Pharaoh, no, you don't get to control life and death. No, we won't let you be the ones who, uh, who wipe out these people, no. Uh, and instead to say, we'll trust that God will eventually bring deliverance, but our piece of that deliverance is, at the very least, we're not going to do what Pharaoh says just because he says so. And then, yeah, when, when the moments come for snakes and or rods into snakes and parting seas, the story can go there, but it starts in uh, actions that are practicable by anybody, and uh, that it's this sense of, like, this doesn't require uh, divine intervention in the sense of burning bushes. It, it's... They, they take their faith seriously, and they say, no, I won't participate in what Pharaoh has commanded me to do, just as Pharaoh commanded me. And so, you know, Pharaoh commands them to do this, and they say that they're not able to do this. And so then Pharaoh brings forth the commandment that all the firstborn sons need to be thrown into the river. And yet, 
in that same kind of theme as these midwives saving these children, we get Moses' mother. Yeah. Who, at least in this first chapter, is not named. I can't mm-hmm. recall if she's ever named. I think tradition at least calls her Yoshebed, but I'm not sure if... Uh, yeah, I don't know if that's tradition or that's biblical. I know in the Cecil B. DeMille movie, The Ten Commandments, she's remembered as Yoshebed. <laughs> yeah. In my mind, like, that's where it started. <laughs> yep, that Cecil B. DeMille tells the story that way. Um, I think she is named later. That could be. That could like, be. when we are introduced to Aaron and, and Miriam, yeah, I think be. she's named, but I that could be. And don't I remember it. I can't recall off the top of my head. I'm not an Old Testament expert. But, you know, again, we see this woman who's going against Pharaoh's orders and hides her, her son, you know, and sends him off to Egypt, who ends up, you know, because of these women's disobedience yeah. to Pharaoh, because of their faith in God. Mm-hmm. We now have someone who can save God's people from Pharaoh. Yeah, and that their their role, uh, uh, Moses's uh, mom, I'm going to call her Yoshebed, um, <laughs> and Miriam and Shifra and Pua, that they are as much a part of how God operates in the story mm-hmm. as the big headline getter Moses. And certainly, there's going to be lots of stories about Moses, uh, but like these. These are the people whose actions are necessary in order for there to, to, to be those other moments, and they are no less important. To, this is this is how how God's people live when they're confronted with these powers over them, and like I think that that's an important piece for us to, to hold on to is, is that they're they have a deep faith, presumably that uh, the God of their ancestors, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, uh, that that this God will come and deliver. But they have a sense of, and because I have this confidence, I will act in light of that future and be a part of it now. So it's not like, oh, well, God's never going to come and save us, so we've got to do this ourselves. Uh, but on the other hand, it's not sort of a passive, oh, well, God's going to save us, so I'll do nothing. Mm-hmm. But there's this, it's like, it's, I'm confident God will work, and in light of what I'm convinced God's going to do, my way of stepping out in faith is to live as though it's true that God's going to deliver. So I will not give in to Pharaoh, and I will you know, save these children's lives. I think that's an important example for all of us, because the temptation sometimes, is, at least as I experience it, is that uh, for us as people of faith, the temptation is either to say, uh, well, God will fix it, and therefore just sort of sit on your hands and do nothing, and say, you know, real faith is saying God will fix it, I should mm-hmm. do nothing. And on the other hand, the temptation is, well, apparently God's not going to do anything, so I've got to fix this. And then it becomes my plan to save the day, rather than this sort of trust that God is real, God is active, and God reserves the right to use me as part of answering the prayer, as well as beyond me, too. Well, I wonder, you know, we talked a lot around that same theme last week with Esther. Mm-hmm. And obviously Esther is a story that happens well after the story of Moses. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the story of Moses is one that was carried throughout the yeah. Hebrew. Yeah. And I, I'm wondering now, um, as, as we're thinking about these two stories that typically don't go together, yeah. if that wasn't some of the inspiration for Esther and, and doing what she did. Sure, yeah, yeah. Were these midwives, you know, because again, she was in a place where she could have just, you know, sat back. Even Mordecai said to her, you know, I believe you're raised up for a time such as this, but if you don't act, somebody else yeah, will. help will arise from another quarter. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. I don't know. Just random thoughts of the math. Well, I, I, and I think this is that's a really important point that I, I don't think often gets talked enough about, in, in, and I'll, I'll fault preachers for this. <laughs> At least me as a preacher. Um, the power of that these are our stories and simply letting this be sort of like part of the air we breathe as, as the people of faith. It doesn't, every story doesn't require, and now here's a follow-up sermon of three immediate you know, life application points. Sometimes it's just having these stories in the background, like the family stories of the people of God, so that later on when we're in a difficult situation and we're 
looking for what well what does courage look like in this mm-hmm. situation what does it look like to do the right thing the stories that come to mind are well sometimes what it looks like to do the courageous thing is to say no to Pharaoh and you help deliver those babies for crying out loud or sometimes you step out and you speak up to save people uh, when it would be easier to be quiet or something like that and and if these are the stories that inform God's people, then yeah, it makes sense that Esther, whatever her upbringing would have looked like, it could have just been these are the stories Mordecai tells her around the family dinner table when they would get together as kids or whatever, but that these are the stories that then inform her, and eventually that sort of becomes, okay, here's how I know how to act, uh, or here are the the cues I take as I look forward, and in a similar way, we talked, I'm thinking like almost a year ago, Erica, and we talked about Mary's song Once Upon a Time Mm -hmm. in um, uh, the Magnificat, and about like, there's a connecting point between who Jesus ends up to be and what he learns about yeah. God from like oh, yeah. imagining Absolutely. that this is at least representative of the kind of faith Mary had, whether he actually, she actually sang these words to him on a regular <laughs> basis or not. But like that that's the kind of picture Jesus grows up with. So that in some sense Jesus learns how to be Jesus because mm-hmm. Mary passes along, here's the stories of what God has done. And where Mary get these ideas from? Well, in a sense from Hannah's song before her, but also like these are the stories of how God has consistently acted in the face of Pharaoh, raising up Shifra and Pua, who, you know, look after these these uh, little vulnerable kids. Because Mary can quote all the things that she quotes from the what we call the Old Testament, which would have been her Bible. Yeah. Because I mean, she was immersed in it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think I'll take fault for this too as a pastor. I don't do this enough to immerse my people into the story. When we talk about Moses, we talk about the burning bush, or we talk about the Red Sea, or we talk about you know the ten plagues, but we don't spend a lot of time talking about the first few chapters of the story. Right, right. And right. how he was saved and, and maybe and we might preach on it once a year, you know. Or once every three years, depending on what it shows up in the lectionary, and then we move on. Yeah. We're not immersed in this like the Jews would have immersed themselves in the entire story. Yeah. And I think that's another important difference. That, like, at our best in the Christian tradition, at least the parts of the tradition I'm familiar with, we try to hold on to that sense of the bigness of the story, mm-hmm. but there is this impulse, especially in this era in which we live, of, like, okay, give me the three bullet home bullet point take-home points about life application that, like, reduce, well, the story of Moses is about you have to be a, project, you know, a productive leader and you have to be good at speaking. And, like, mm-hmm. no, like, these stories have power in and of themselves, and before we even get to what are the three take-home points for how I face my week at work, maybe this story isn't about me at work. Maybe this is about laying the groundwork for how God moves in history. And letting those stories just sit the way they do and sort of like just letting them resonate. Um, and I think about how, especially in tradition, in, in modern Judaism, in whatever form, like at the, the time of the Passover, like there's this great recitation of like, here's the story, and how much of that ancient story of deliverance gets sort of retold year by year in different forms. And in Christianity, we, we try and do that as well, at least in, in, in some form. That's what happens around the communion table with whatever frequency, but it's this sort of great rehearsing of the story uh, and that now has this chapter of Jesus as the, sort of the, the culmination of it. But like we don't stop the story in the middle of the, the t- storytelling at communion and say, and now here's three bullet points or what the, no, like just let the story be and yeah. like be fed with this story and maybe maybe we and that's okay, rather than rushing to, well, what are the five you know, bullet points I have to take home so that I can you know, uh, look like I'm relevant? So you're saying maybe sometimes my sermons need to start just reading scripture, like <laughs> chapters of scripture at a time, and just saying, here you go, or, here's the word. Or maybe we should be attentive, at least this is sort of me putting on like religious, religious professional hats, you know, like, the, like as we around a table, as people who have 
congregations that we work with. That there are times for the, here's the three takeaway bullet point kind of things, but there's also a need for sometimes, just let the story be the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and that there will come a point when, why did I, why was the story told to me, or why it was important to hold on, will become clear. But sometimes just let the story be the story. And maybe that's not the same as Sunday preaching, or maybe that's not the same as, you know, but like, there are times when that's what we need. Because clearly it seems like the, the scriptures themselves lay out, sometimes what they did is they just told the story, and then later generations sort of drew on that, and they took their courage from Miriam, they took their courage from Shepherd and Pua, and now we take our courage from Esther and Mary and Jesus mm-hmm. as, as well. Speaking of Miriam, there's more to be said about her, because even though she's this sort of fulcrum character as baby Moses is floating down the river in the basket... Or is she? Ah, okay. What, so... Moses' sister in chapter 2 is not named. Yeah. That's not necessarily Miriam. Right, right, that's Because especially in this time when there isn't really birth control, the likelihood of only having three children, right? Right, Moses, right, right. Aaron, and Miriam. <laughs> Unlikely. I mean, it's possible, but you're more likely to have large families. And so that this sister of Moses might not yeah, be that's Miriam. Good that's a good point. This could be another sister. Right, right. And it's important, I think, that's a, that's a really good point that, that while like my gut wants to just jump to, oh, sister, that must be Miriam, to like, when the text doesn't say something, instead of me filling in the gap with, oh, I know better than the text, it must be Miriam. <laughs> Sometimes mm. the texts intend to be ambiguous or intend to leave it and like to leave those ambiguities rather than to force them all together. That's a, that's a really good point. So there's a sister who goes with the basket. And yep. then Miriam, who is named later on, becomes like uh, an important co-leader alongside Moses and Aaron. Although uh, sometimes with um, great character and sometimes like she's alongside Aaron going like, I'm not sure if we can trust that God's going to be there. Like, so she's not she's not uplifted as this like, oh, and Miriam never made a mistake. Just like Moses isn't uplifted as something that never made a mistake. And neither is Aaron. Like all three of them uh, have these moments of like blowing it. Um, and in fact, there comes a point where Miriam and Aaron are upset with Moses because he uh, marries a, uh, a woman, presumably who has a darker complexion. Who she she married uh, he, Moses is married Zipporah, and they make they they make light of the fact, or they they, they criticize Moses for marrying someone with darker skin. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's that whole thing to unpack as well. And there's consequences for Miriam. In fact, the sort of the poetic justice when that happens is Miriam gets struck with leprosy temporarily, so her skin gets super, super, uh, like, ashy, and then there, she, there's this healing. It, it's sort of like God sort of poking out like the, oh, you're upset about it. you think everyone's skin should be lighter colored. How do you like it? Um, but the, the thing that is really interesting to me in, in all that, uh, although there's lots of radicals we can go down, <laughs> is that, that the, the biblical writers seem to be so honest uh, about whoever the human leaders are, that there are always failures and mess-ups, and mm-hmm. that um, Moses and Miriam and, and Aaron aren't disqualified despite those, but there's this, yep, Miriam, in this moment, she was really good. In this moment, she messed up, and then she didn't get kicked out. You're like, okay, we're going to because that's all God ever works with is people who are mess-ups, because that's all there is. <laughs> so I'm going to be honest. I didn't really prepare for this, because I didn't know I was going to do this until like 30 <laughs> seconds before we started. But if I remember the story of Aaron and Miriam getting punished, and I believe they both get leprosy, but mm-hmm. their time... I didn't look this up. Their time is different. Like, Miriam is somehow punished harsher than Aaron, but yet the people stayed and waited for her and for her time period of being banished for leprosy. Uh uh So the people 
didn't abandon her in her punishment, yeah. but was all like, "Hey, yeah, we're going. We're wandering for a really long time until we get to the promised land, and you've been punished and sent outside the camp because you have leprosy and like you're um, unclean. Yeah. But yeah, we're going to wait for you. Yeah, yeah. And when you are done with your time of punishment and you can be deemed clean again." then you are welcome back amongst us. Yeah. That, I, think, I think that's an important piece that we often don't give uh, the, the biblical uh, Hebrews, the Israelites, credit for. Because sometimes, uh, especially uh, we modern Christians have this way of being like, oh, they were so judgmental back then about leprosy. And like, oh, you were out. And like, okay, there's a concern, obviously, for not spreading contagion. But yeah, this is evidence in the story of like, that um, at least in this moment, there was a, okay, you're sick, and then when you get better, you're welcome back in, rather than, oh, that's it, you're out permanently forever and ever. Right. Um, and that Miriam clearly must have been an important enough figure that they wouldn't leave her behind, that, like, okay, you'll be welcome back in. That's an important piece that clearly, um, for all the ways that she has uh, slip-ups, um, that, that her leadership is that important. Um, I, I've also heard it suggested, because the other thing that comes to mind when I think of Miriam is the, the song that comes up in, in um, um, Exodus 15 that first gets called the Song of Moses, and then there's like this chorus part at the end that's called the Song of Miriam. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, it's after they come through the Red Sea, and after they see the water come back, and they see that they, God has defeated the Egyptians, uh, the text says Moses breaks in a song, and there's a poem that sort of like is, is suggested that it was sung. It's another one of those moments the, music, the Bible is a musical. Uh, and then after this long part, then uh, in verse 20 in chapter 15, the, then the prophet Miriam, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out with tambourines and with dancing. And Miriam sang, and she's got basically the refrain of the same song that Moses sang, sing to the Lord, for he's triumphed gloriously, horse and rider he's thrown into the sea, or something like that. Um, and that I can remember somebody suggesting somewhere along the way, the, the, the chorus, not always, but often like that's really where the song starts and you know, the verses get built on after that. And in some sense, there might be like an earlier, like the, this is the earliest part of this and that the other pieces sort of got added on and that's the, you know, most of the song is the full version, but like the demo version, the, 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 uh, the, the words came to me in the middle of the night and I wrote it down like, you know, Paul McCartney writing yesterday. Um, like that this is at the core of it and that Miriam then is like remembered as this not just someone who borrowed somebody else's song, but might be sort of at the, at the root of this song itself. And to me, it's interesting, too, that like in the whole story of the Exodus, God is really clear again and again with the people, you guys aren't going to have to do the fighting. I will be the, God is the one who does, who, who liberates. God you know, is the one who sends out the pillar of fire to keep the, the uh, soldiers at bay as they're coming. God's the one who parts the waters. God does the, the fighting for them. And God says... Your job, you're going to sit there and watch how I save you this day uh, and then tell the story. And Miriam does that. She's like, that Miriam, again, with Moses as well, but that our job sometimes is simply to sing and that by itself is an act of resistance against Pharaoh. Because Pharaoh knows how to provoke people into fighting back. And if you're the one with all the chariots, yeah, you're going to win that fight. That's, that's why Pharaoh keeps doing it. Um, but if the, the way the people of God respond is to sing in response and say, God does the saving, um, and we're not going to pick a fight with Pharaoh with, with swords and shields, uh, but we're going to trust that God will be the one who, who fights on our behalf. Um, Pharaoh doesn't know what to do with that. Just like you know, the, the powers of the day, the Romans don't know what to do with the Christians who are willing to go face the lions or the crosses or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, and, and not to launch a, a violent revolt back. The Romans don't know how to deal with violent revolt. They crush them and kill them. But these, these uh, you know, the early Christians, they, they sort of had this, well, we'll sing at you, <laughs> kind of response. And that, the, the world took notice of that. That was surprising, because um, it wasn't playing into Pharaoh, playing by Pharaoh's rules. And in a way, that to me seems like an even more powerful way of resisting the powers of evil, is to 
refuse to play by their terms or play their game. You know, Pharaoh's always looking to goad us into picking, you know, fighting back on his terms. And of course, we're going to lose then. But if no, I'm not going to play by your rules, whether it's Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, or Caesar. Also, what a great way to show that you're not afraid, right? Like, yeah. mm-hmm. afraid people do not burst out in joyous songs. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And, and the, I guess the other thing I, I like about this moment in the story, there are going to be points later on where God's people get um, arrogant and sort of like, we're the big deals. But at least in the moment of this song, it's God's the one who's done the saving. And God's the center, God's the hero. It's not like, oh, look how our army kicked your army's butt. It's not, it's not about that. It's God is the one who's done the saving. And they get that. In fact, later on, there's this recurring thread, in the, especially in the Psalms, about, like, don't put your trust in your weapons, don't put your trust in your chariots. Mm-hmm. And the moment you start bragging about how powerful you are, that's when God takes the rug out from under you sometimes. But um, the, there's clarity here, that it's God is, the, is the, the hero in this story in that sense, but that the right role of human beings then isn't um, to say, well, God's not doing anything, we got to do it. And on the other hand, not to say... Um, well, God's going to take care of it. We'll just sort of uh, not care. But like our, our, our piece is to celebrate what God's up to and let that be a part of our, I guess, resistance. Okay, so we have talked now uh, about these two uh, women, sets of women. There's, there's Miriam, we've talked about. We've talked about Shifra and Pua and all the other anonymous midwives of the Hebrew people. Um, hopefully uh, lifting up characters, figures in the story that maybe don't get as much press, but have powerful examples for us. Um, We hope you'll join us next time for further adventures. Um, Thanks for listening, and thanks to to Sarah for being with us. No, thank you. Have a great week, guys. Bye.